again, you don't necessarily have to get 50, 60, 75% of your build financed by sponsors. But for every single sponsored product that you do get, that's a dollar that you don't have to spend. Welcome to the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast, the show where you learn how to plan, build, and live the tiny lifestyle. I'm your host, Ethan Waldman, and this is episode 97 with MJ Boyle. MJ is a returning guest to the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast, and today she is here to talk all about how to get sponsors to help you get materials for free for your tiny house. MJ has built several tiny houses this way, and it has saved her a lot of cash up front, and she really has the process dialed in. So I'm going to ask her how she does it, how you can get started, and whether or not she thinks that there is still room out there for people to find sponsors for their tiny house builds. MJ will also fill us in on her latest tiny house build, which is called My Tiny Wine Wagon, which was converted from a $1,000 mobile pancake hut that she bought off Craigslist, again, for $1,000, and turned into a dreamy luxury tiny house rental. It's a really amazing story, and she'll share all the details about how she did it. I hope you stick around for this great conversation with MJ Boyle. I'd like to give a listener shout out this week to Tiny Steps Giant Changes, who left a review of the show on Apple Podcasts. They said, if you like podcasts or tiny living, then you will love this podcast. Ethan is quickly establishing himself as a tiny house icon. This podcast is a treasure trove of knowledge, resources, and inspiration. I found this podcast shortly after deciding that I was going to go tiny, and it has served somewhere between my own personal sensei and librarian for becoming a tiny houser. Thank you so much for your efforts to help others make these life-changing changes. Thank you so much for the kind words, and please send updates. I'd love to hear about how things are going as you progress through your planning and your build. If you'd like to help out the Tiny House Lifestyle podcast, consider leaving a review of the show wherever you listen. Reviews truly do help us find new listeners, which helps grow the show. I even have a handy new link that will help direct you to where you can write the review. So just go to ratethispodcast.com slash THLP. Again, leave a review for the Tiny House Lifestyle podcast at ratethispodcast.com slash THLP. Thank you so much for your support of the show. All right, I am here with MJ Boyle. MJ is with Empty Nest Tiny Homes, and she is a proud and outgoing creator and hostess, published author, accomplished speaker, patented inventor, popular blogger, Craigslist stalker, enthusiastic glamper, the hostess of the Tiny House podcast former, or maybe current, as well as a passionate tiny house designer, builder, occupant, and advocate. I'm Joy Boyle. Welcome back to the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast. Thank you. I appreciate that you circled back and we get a follow-up on some of the stuff we talked about. Me too. Me too. Um, Your interview definitely struck a chord for a lot of people um, because you talked a lot about building with sponsored materials and just how you're able to, to get materials for your builds and reduce your costs. But before we get to that, I, I also want to get an update on your latest tiny home. My tiny wine wagon. Dot com. Yes. 
That's cost. <laughs> you remember. Of course. Uh, of course, if your listeners want to see the photos, um, mytinywinewagon.com is where they're going to go. So when we talked, I had just bought it. And the backstory, real quick, is that not far from here, there's a little town called Cottage Grove. And for 37 years, this kind of uh, philanthropic organization had what's called the Mountaineers Pancake Breakfast. So every year they would haul their little uh, tiny pancake shack up to the top of a mountain and the whole town would come out and 25 bucks ahead and then they would raise all this money for the town and then they would pay it forward. So they had decided they were actually going to get an upgraded one and they were going to sell their pancake shack. So it really was very somewhat serendipitous. Um, I went down there, I I offered them $1,000. Um, you know, here I am, here's my cash, here's my truck. Will you take it kind of a thing? They said yes. So again, if you go to that website, you'll see the pick the before and after pictures. It's pretty cool. And it was basically a 10,000 pound chassis. So it's a, it was a 1958 Nashua single wide mobile home chassis. They had actually upgraded the axles, however, because they had to haul a lot of propane. So with the 10,000 pound you know, chassis, basically. Um, The whole thing has also been stored exclusively indoors when not in use. So, so again, 10,000 pound chassis with basically an existing structure on it. Now, I think you're being, people might picture that in their heads and think of something that looks a whole lot more inhabitable than (laughs) what you actually started with. I mean... This thing looks like a farm. This thing looks like maybe like goats or chickens lived inside of it. Like it, it, it wasn't too far from that. I mean, again, for 37 years, it was just used once a year. Um, if you look, so if you look at the picture, you'll see these big, these big metal grates kind of on the side. Right. Basically, that was that was a fold down ramp, right? So they would fold those down. They would screw some plywood on it. And that's the ramp that actually people would use to walk up. So they would walk up one side and at the first window, they would actually order their pancakes and then they would walk down the other side and at the, uh, the other window on the other end, they would actually pick up their pancakes. So the inside was just all on one side. It was all just, again, pancake grills. You know, it was, um, what do they call it? Cast iron pancake grills which is another reason why I got such a good price for it was because they're like, well, do you want the propane tank? And I'm like, no. And they said, do you want all the cast iron, you know, grills? And I was like, no. So this is what um, the picture on the website is what it looks like when I bought it. But when I went to pick it up, it was completely, you know, they, they took out all that stuff and then they were able to sell that stuff, you know, separately. And they were able to actually make back a little bit more money than, than I had given them. So. Yeah, so the the major 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 thing that of course happened was I had to take the the roof off because well first of all it was very low it was totally flat there really wasn't much roof to speak of because it was always stored indoors uh-huh. and there were three fairly large like twenty four by inch but twenty four by twenty four inch ceiling fans that would again evacuate all the smoke and the air and the, you know, all the cooking and the grease and the oil and everything. So 
three huge holes in a completely flat ceiling. So that was, of course, the first. That's the only, I would call it, major portion of the renovation was taking the roof off and completely designing a new roof line. Wow. So did you have to like reframe anything? Because I'm looking, I was looking at those interior pictures and it was hard to tell, like, was it structurally sound as, as is, or did you have to really dig into the structure? So it was, it was structurally sound, but we also dug into the structure mainly because of the fact that, um, you know, I was very nervous because I wasn't just going to be taking it up to a mountaintop and back. I was, I actually had to haul it. I think it was about 500 and something miles on the freeway. So I was very nervous about making sure that, yeah, going up and down the road, you know, once a year is one thing. So it was also framed with two by threes. So my original intent was to just go ahead and use, um, uh, what do you call it? Rigid foam insulation and just, you know, put the sheetrock on top of the two by threes. That did not end up happening for a number of reasons. So we did end up, the back section, which used to be the porch, we enclosed, which is now the bathroom. So that was kind of a, you know, that's all done in two by four. And then, of course, in order to connect the, the now very high roof section, we had to run two by fours floor to ceiling, right? You can't just stick a roof on top of it. Otherwise, there'd be a major, like, I guess you would call it a hinge point or a weak point. So, yes, we did end up augmenting um, a augmenting it with two by fours. And then we ended up furring out the existing two by threes in order to give us, you know, a nice, uh, a nice structure. It's really stunning. I mean, looking at the finished photos on your, on your blog and on Airbnb, you know, it, it doesn't, if you, if you put the two side by side, you wouldn't know that it was the same structure. Thank you. But if you do put them top over bottom, you'll see the windows are in the exact same spot. Doors are in the same spot. The end, what used to be the two end doors, one of the end doors is actually now the bathroom door. Because again, it used to go outside kind of to the back porch, which is where they had the propane tank. Now it's the bathroom door that actually goes outside to the shower. And then the front door, which is on the tongue, very, you know, kind of a narrow exit, close that up. But that's, that's the window, that, that kind of glass blocky window on the, on the bedroom end. Mm-hmm. So I felt very, very strongly, um, much to the chagrin of many of my contractors, I felt very strongly about maintaining structural, I guess, not necessarily even integrity, but the structural personality. I had no intention. Um, Many, many people said, you're absolutely nuts. You need to tear this all the way down to the frame and start from scratch. And I just was not prepared to do that. So I felt pretty strongly about keeping everything intact. Do you think that you could have done it for less if you had torn it all the way down to the frame? Or did, did keeping the structure still save you some money? Keeping the structure still saved me a tremendous amount of money. What you are looking at, uh, including the deck and the decor, uh, what you're looking at, I paid um, less than $15,000. Wow, that's incredible. I mean, people buy tiny houses like this from, from 
tiny house builders, I would guess for 60 or $70,000. Yeah. I mean, the market, definitely the market value is, it's much higher than that. But in my business, return on investment is king, right? My ROI numbers, how fast can I return the cash that I have spent? This house was the least sponsored of all of my houses. Um, main, I'm not, I don't know how exactly how to explain it. I think probably because of the fact that this house was my least sponsored because I was so, so, so busy. I have a real, like real corporate job. I was also managing, um, I'm managing now during the summertime, a fully booked Airbnb village of tiny homes. And I also had a tiny home built and sponsorship and collecting sponsored materials that takes a lot of time and a lot of focus and a lot of energy. So for this one, for the wine wagon, what was really different was I actually spent more cash than any of my other builds, but I actually quote unquote had the cash because I take my extra money from my regular job, plus the proceeds of the other three income generating tiny houses and rolled it forward. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. You were able to, to kind of, I guess you could say leverage your other, other properties, although not traditionally leverage them. You didn't take out loans against them, but yeah, you've got a, you've got a thriving business and you reinvested your profits. Exactly. And that's, that's basically, yeah, what I did. So in the end, however, of course, what I ended up with as an asset, if I were to be so generous with my, with the description of my project, the asset is definitely worth more than I put into it. And also the amount of time it's actually going to take me to pay me back for the cash is relatively short, you know, as an investment. So I'm, I'm really, really, really thrilled. This, this build was really, really challenging because the con, the economy right now means that really all of the really, really, really great contractors, they're booked, they're busy, they're expensive, they're difficult. They're like, they have like the God complex. I swear to you, I'm not kidding. This this economy right now is really, really, really difficult for people like me to hire kind of the one-off contractors here and there. And so this was a more difficult build as well because my boyfriend who typically does a lot of work for me was not available. And so, because he's so busy with his own clients and his own projects. So this one was really, really difficult on a number of levels, but but monetarily, I'm thrilled. Design-wise, I'm thrilled. And so far, social media, just this past week, has been very generous. So I'm, I'm super excited. So when did it go on the Airbnb market? Six days ago, I think. Yeah, like just brand new. I had a, a local quasi-celebrity um, influencer guy that came and stayed the first night. And he was off book. And so him and his girlfriend came and stayed. And it was funny because I had met him on Facebook, but we didn't really know each other. I reached out and said, hey, you're an influencer. You want to come stay? Tell me what you think. And it was off book because I was like, look, you may not like it. It may be totally screwed up. Something may be broken. You may not be like it, but that's why I'm booking it. That's where you're staying off book. Because if something's wrong, I'm using you as my guinea pig. Right, I don't want the bad review on Airbnb. <laughs> exactly. So, so you tell me what you think, but we're not going to. Anyways, and he walked in and he goes, oh my God, this is so easy. Like this is done. He didn't know what to expect either. Like he had no clue what he was showing up for. And of course he also loved the other tiny houses in the village and the forest and the, 
you know, the whole thing, he was, he was super impressed. And that was, of course, validation. I'm always excited about my projects, but I never assume that other people will be as well. Well, that's awesome. Congratulations. Thanks. Yay. So I want to jump in because in our last interview, we kind of left it at you got to come back to talk about getting sponsors for your build. Um, sell me on it. Like, wh- what does what does sponsors give you other than just more people to deal with and and more time commitments down the road? Oh gosh, I mean, sponsors are really sponsors in the beginning of my tiny house journey really meant the literal difference between being able to do it or not able to do it at all. When I started on my tiny empty nest.com, <laughs> uh, when I started on it in 2014, I had no money. Like, I mean, I, I single mom working nine to five paycheck to paycheck. Like I had no money and I really had to come up with a creative concept about how to pay pay for my house, pay for my future. And so Andrew Odom of uh, Tiny Revolution wrote a book called Your Message Here. And I basically took the concept that he had laid out in the book. I devoured that book in like a few hours. I read it cover to cover and took notes and basically took the concept that he actually outlined in the book and blew it up. Um you know, mid about by house number three, a couple people had referred to my tiny houses as the NASCAR of tiny houses. My house that I'm sitting in right now, my tiny empty nest, I had 24 national level corporate sponsors. And for instance, the total build cost. So the only thing that doesn't go into my build budget is my time. But if someone gives me a sponsorship for, let's say, $1,000 worth of product, that $1,000 still hits the budget. I mean, it's still, you know, value in the house. So the total, um, the total um, spent, including sponsorship materials and everything on my house was 35,000 in 2014. But 65% of that was actually covered by, you know, build it by uh, sponsors. Lowe's Home Improvement, for instance, they, Lowe's Home Improvement, there was three local stores what people don't understand a lot of times about stores or, you know, retailers or, you know, they have a budget. They have it in their budget every single year to sponsor or donate or get involved in community projects. And so Lowe's three local stores actually all got together and Lowe's Home Improvement actually gave me all my lumber. They, I mean, I sent them a, you know, a list. And they bundled it up and they delivered it on my front lawn and it was a hundred, it was all free. I mean, bam, there it was on the lawn. Now, do you go to like Lowe's corporate to do that? Or did you actually go to your local stores and say, you know, let me talk to the manager about this project? Yeah, I went to the local stores. Again, the the stores, most stores um, have a discretionary budget, again, that they use every month. You know, they may be involved in Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts or veterans communities, you know, projects or whatever. But at the time as well, I have to admit, I was also catching the wave of Tiny House's popularity with my Tiny House. I had to explain to them what Tiny Houses were. And 
I hadn't even started a blog yet. So the the first the first sponsorship was really really a hustle. I I had what I call a ten to one ratio. So I contacted over the phone or in person, you know, two hundred plus companies, and I got twenty a little over twenty sponsors. So nine times out of ten, they're like, "Why would we? What? What? Like what? They didn't get it. They didn't like it." Um, but the sponsors I got were so enthusiastic and supportive. It made it all, all that work worth it. So what is it that you're offering them kind of in exchange or are you even offering them anything? So my sponsorship agreement with my sponsors is one, it's very wholly dependent on what it is they want. Do they want social media content? Do they just want access to the pictures when I'm done? Do they want me to do videos about, hey, here's how to install this sink or here's why I like this flooring. So the sponsorship agreements that I set up really is based on whatever it is that they want. Some of them have no social media presence at all. With that said, however, my value to their organization is I give them the very, very unique opportunity to actively advertise in the tiny house industry. Again, in 2014, it was just starting to pick up Tiny House Nation was a new TV show on a brand new network that was just absolutely, you know, was really starting to to come around. And um, so it's like the tiny house industry now, I mean, it's just so huge comparatively, but at the time it's like, look, this is a growing industry. This is, this is a trend. This is an architectural you know, trend by, and it's making a lot of noise. And so if you give me a sink, which you already have probably in your back room already, like in the scratch and dent department, then I use your logo and all my marketing. And, you know, when you get to use pictures for your websites or your social media. So again, the, the actual sponsorship agreement really is dependent on a, the sponsor's goals, right? Is it all social media or do I do public speaking or other things like that? Do I write for their blog? And then secondarily, how much I do for them is also dependent on, of course, the level um, of what they gave me, right? So if someone's going to give me sync, for instance, they're not going to get the level of, shall we say, exposure or all that other stuff I talked about, as opposed to like lows that give me other Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it sounds like this isn't like an indefinite uh, situation where like you have to post about lows forever. It's maybe, is, is there a time period that you usually set with these types of promotions? Well, on one hand, it is kind of indefinite because my blog exists forever. So on some levels, that advocacy or that, you know, that review or, or whatever I did for them kind of does exist in infamy, shall we say, because it's on the internet. On the other hand, you are correct. My active promotion of my sponsors only actually happens during the course of the build itself. And then for two months afterwards, right? Obviously, once pictures are, are live, then there's, you know, a lot of social media buzz and a lot of social media and content opportunity. But I had by my third build, I had so many sponsors that 
wanted to sign up to do another house. So I mentioned my hit rate on my first house was one to 10, right? Out of ever 10 people, that one person said yes. Right. For my second house, it was one to seven. For my third sponsored tiny house, it was one to four. So a lot of the sponsors had had so much positive feedback and a positive feeling and just an overall great experience that they actually signed up again and again and again. Nice. And so that's that serves you really well as somebody who is set out to build more than one tiny house. You've, you've got almost a network of sponsors to come back to. Right. And I have a network, again, I, in perpetuity. Is that the right word? So forever, ever, and ever, or for instance, Nature's Head, I now have three Nature's Head's toilets in my village. So not only, um, you know, the first one was sponsored, but then I went back and bought more for the houses. So not only does Nature's Head, for instance, get that, again, ongoing, all these pictures of my house and all the blogs I wrote, the reviews and so forth, but people can actually book and come stay and try them. And, you know, so there's a so the, again, in many, many cases, there's this ongoing advocacy associated with some of these brands. Got it. Got it. That's, it's just really a totally different way to think about putting together a tiny house build. And, and I guess I'm curious. So you, when you started this, you know, nobody knew what a tiny house was. Um, they were just kind of going on the fact that you were able to to convince them and and sell them kind of on this vision. We're in a much different world now. There are tiny house TV shows. I would say that most people know what a tiny house is. Do you think that that there's do you think it's too late to get sponsors for your build? Like is this already saturated or is there still opportunity for for someone listening who might want to pursue this as well? I think that there is still opportunity. And I'll tell you why. There's basically a couple of reasons why. Number one, Andrew Odom had wrote the mess, you know, wrote that first book, Your Message Here. He actually, in my podcast, when I interviewed him, Andrew Odom had said that he felt like the sponsorship train had already left the station. But then later on, um, because partially because of what I was able to do and partially because of other efforts, he actually went on to write a follow-on to that book and said, no, it's, it's still alive and well. One thing I do want to mention that I haven't so far, I never quote unquote guaranteed to the sponsor what they would get out of it, right? I didn't guarantee them a million clicks on their website. I didn't guarantee them anything. I told them what I would do, but what they got out of it was to what extent they leveraged what I was able to to do right my social media or cross posting or you know that kind of thing. So um I wanted to mention that because again I'm not placing any guarantees. I'm saying this is what I have. This is the product that I have. This is why the product that I have is very unique and this is what I'm going to do for you. You have the opportunity to leverage all of these eyeballs that you wouldn't social media that you wouldn't traditionally be able to to um eyeball is there an opportunity for other people? Yes, I think so. And here's why. I think our environment, our cultural environment right now is very much emphasis on community and partnerships and bartering and really creative solutions. So while I was able to, and if you want to, we can talk a little bit about 
the process that I used because it was it was equally it was also very sort of unique. But um, again, you don't necessarily have to get 50, 60, 75 percent of your build financed by sponsors. But for every single sponsored product that you do get, okay, you that's a dollar that you don't have to spend, right? So you can put together a whole PR campaign like I did. And you can blow up social media. You can do all kinds of things. I think there's an opportunity if um, someone has a very, very, very unique, shall we say, story. What is, what is your backstory? What's your presence? What, how do you go about your world? What does your brand look like? It's not just um, me talking them into it, although probably a little bit of that. It's me saying, hey, here is my brand. Here is my story. Here, do, do, do your values of your company align with my values and my company? And you already have excess inventory or you already have slow moving inventory or you already, you're looking for new opportunities to market that doesn't involve, you know, radio stations or whatever. So it's a really, actually, it's a very in-depth process. And I think there's still a lot of value for anyone who wants to walk through that process to really engage with their neighbors, with, you know, with companies. I did it at some really, again, larger national level companies, but you don't have to, you know, there's Ace Hardwares and there's, there's corner stores and there's lumber mills and there's, you know, reclaim stores. There's so many, so much opportunity out there to, again, leverage your story in your community. And I think, I think that sociologically that's, you know, that's still very relevant. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a local hardware store in in almost every town, so that's probably a great place to start for people, right? So yeah, let's let's talk about the process that you used. Um, how, you know, walk me through it. Well, part of it. So my process is very reflective of my overall the go to life process or my, you know, modus operandi. Um, I'm a spreadsheet geek. I love spreadsheets. It's what I do for my, for, for a living. I love spreadsheets. I'm very, very organized. And so the first thing that I did was, of course, is I brainstormed a list of all the materials that I, that I knew I was going to need, right? I need lumber and I need window coverings and flooring and appliances. And uh, that, you know, that's like the first column on the spreadsheet, like, here's all this stuff that I need. And then I went and I brainstormed what companies provide all of this stuff that I need. Now, the big box stores, that's kind of, that was kind of, they're kind of their own little spreadsheet. But what, what are the brands? What are the stores? What's local? What's national? Da, da, da. So then I, you know, brainstormed a list of companies that provided all those materials. And that would be, shall we say, column two in the spreadsheet. And then aside from that, of course, I was setting up my brand, right? I have a logo and a website and, you know, a blog and I had headshots taken and started, you know, kind of started telling my story out there. So that's another thing is identifying during this process, who are you and what is your unique story? So after I had actually identified all the companies that provided all the stuff I need, then I did research into those companies. And this is really what takes the most time. The first thing you have to figure out is what is their social media presence? What is their go-to-market? I, you know, do they have social media? Do they not? Do are they very active? Are they do they have a blog? How is their photography? Like understanding the company's values, understanding their marketing trend, 
Are they very well known? Are they not well known? Have they already been featured on Tiny House Nation, the television show, those kinds of things. And also researching who is the decision maker for that company. In the smaller companies, it's easier. You walk in the front door, who's a general manager? The larger the company gets, the way more difficult it is to actually identify and contact the person that makes the decision that's a yay or nay. Especially if it's like a corporate company. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Like, for instance, one of them was one of my really big sponsors was American Standard. You know, they, they have plumbing. They just so happen to have a subsidiary here in the Portland area. And so um, they, I was able to work with some local people. I was able to do material sourcing locally, which really worked out well. But I, um, so again, you figure out what you need. You figure out who's got it. You figure out who is the decision maker for that company. And then you just start, you know, hitting the bricks. Now, either I would email them first and then call them as a follow-up, or I would call them first and then email them as a follow-up, which is the next column in the spreadsheet, right? The next column in the spreadsheet is what is the person's name? Then there's what is the person's phone number? What is the person's email address? And then you say, did I call them and leave them a voicemail on this date? And then, of course, because you, you want to follow up, but you don't want to bother them. And so keeping a very clear record of I called them on the 1st, I emailed them on the 14th, I called them again a month and a half later, like keeping a very clear record to say, hey, I'm still here, I'm still interested, there's some really great stuff going on, that kind of thing. I have one sponsor that actually took me two years to land. Wow. That's because he was like, okay, well, I can't do it right now. So circle back with me later. Yeah. You could probably think that was the brush off and it kind of totally was. But when you, every six months you're like, Hey, I'm working on another project and this one's better than the last one or unique from the last one because of this. And so, um, that sponsor took me two years to land, but then they sponsored three projects in a row. So, um, and a great guy, great. As a matter of fact, I'm actually wearing his T-shirt, like literally right now as, as we sit here. So um, some really great relationships are formed through that process. And in my case, when I decided to do it again, I already have this magic spreadsheet. I call it the magic spreadsheet. I have all this information. I have all these people and emails, literally hundreds of emails. I know if someone said, not this project, try me on the next one. What date they said it? Did they say it in email or voicemail? Did we talk on the phone? All these notes that add depth to this relationship that I'm actually fostering. So you're basically running a, a CRM out of a spreadsheet. Pretty much. <laughs> and for those non-nerds listening, uh, CRM, customer relationship <laughs> management software. Yes. And then, of course, sheet two is the project management software, right? That's your timeline. And then sheet three is all the contractors. So then you have your labor spreadsheet as well. Like all the contractors you contacted, which ones were jerks. I don't know if I can cuss on this podcast. You can. Which one, it's okay. which one were assholes? Oh my God. That's probably a whole nother podcast or not. Um, maybe we'll drink our way through that one. But um, yeah, so then you, I have another spreadsheet, which is all of my resources, like my labor resources. And then that last, I don't know, spreadsheet or sheet number like five or six is the actual budget. So as I walk through the project, I update, here was my budgetary column and here's my actual column. 
and I can keep track at any given time what percentage, how far along I am in the budget, how far along I am in the project. Yeah, I'm a nerd. Yeah, no, this is, it's important though, because when you, when you start doing something like sponsors, the level of organization required goes up. Right. So going back to the question, is this something that someone else can do? Sure, you can do it. I, I don't consider it to be rocket science, but is, are there other people out there that are really willing to do this? Again, it's a lot of time. It is a lot of organization. It's a lot of follow-up. Um, also, for instance, was, was also a challenge. I, as you know, I live in a tiny house. And let's say someone's like, yeah, sure, absolutely. I have a truckload of flooring or I have all this stuff. And you're like, uh, no, you're not going to be doing flooring for like nine months. But they, they just said, yes, you have to put yourself in a position to take advantage of the opportunity when it presents itself. You can't say like, oh yeah, about that. Can you like store it and wrap it and cover it in plastic? And then I'll like call you in nine months when I'm ready. You have to take advantage. And that's in, we, in my house, we call this shit shuffle because constantly, even though I live a minimalist lifestyle because I'm also a builder, I constantly have stuff coming in, stuff going out. And I always have to find storage. And I'm always like trying to figure out what project it goes to and making sure it gets identified correctly. So yes, I think there's a tremendous amount of opportunity ongoing. Um, and to that end as well, I think we talked about it a little bit. Um, in 2018, I built a very, very luxurious uh, tiny house for a local architecture showcase called the Street of Dreams. Part of the reason why I was actually selected for that project was because I that was a 100% sponsored project. 100% of the materials and labor was donated to that project. And part of the reason why I was chosen for the designer and project leader for that was because I had already worked with project sponsors. I knew how it went along. In that case, the sponsors came to me with arms full of stuff and said, here, what do you want to use? And it was glorious in that regard. But nonetheless, the relationship management is still very much the same. Absolutely. What, what ended up happening to that house? So it was auctioned off. So um, I built, I'm going to brag for a moment. I built Go for the... It most expensive house in the 37-year history of the Northwest Natural Street of Dreams <laughs> per square foot. All right. $690 per square foot. It was $145,000 build for a 204-square-foot house. It was crazy. Nuts. But again, it was all donated. So it doesn't matter if it's, you know, 10000 or one hundred and fifty. It's all donated. It was auctioned off at the end of the event. It um, auctioned off, it sold for 87000 And it is now an Airbnb here in uh, Oregon. If you actually Google uh, Street of Dreams Tiny Home, you can actually rent it. Nice. The owner, Patty, and I are friends um, after that, and I've gone to stay there. And uh, yeah, I've actually gotten to stay in Amelia. It was really fun. And actually some of Amelia's architecture, definitely some of Amelia's, that's the house's name, by the way, very much influenced my tiny wine wagon as well. People notice that there's some similarity, budget-based similarities. If I could do it on a budget, then I, then I was able to kind of copy some of, the, some of the intent. Yeah. Well, going back to the sponsorship thing, 
you know, this interview, I think, is a great starting place for people. But do you recommend Andrew's books still? Like, are those still a good place to learn about more about the process of how to do this? Yes, absolutely. I recommend them. As a matter of fact, I wrote a chapter in his second book, uh, Your Message Here, too. So, yes, I recommend them because of the fact that he, you know, in, in, in the last 40 minutes, I've kind of like blah, 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 kind of like bumbled through the process. Right. And unless you're a really fast writer, then, that you know, his books are really great because they're like, OK, chapter one, here's what you start with. You start with your brand. Like, what is your website? What is your brand? What is your business cards? Who are you? What unique? It asks you all those questions way more at a pace or organized in a fashion that is very, very accommodating to a learning curve. This is a great, I love podcasts. They inspire us and they're great. And we can get a lot of information in a short period of time. But I think books, I'm still a huge book whore. I love books. I collect books. I have way more books. Every single one of my tiny houses actually has a curated library of books. And so whether or not ebook or physical book, the, the process of learning is is a lot easier, I think. And yes, I highly recommend the books. Again, they, they literally transformed my life. I know that sounds like a really, that sounds like hyperbole, but it's not. I mean, like I started with this mere concept of a tiny house and now I'm sitting here. I own five of them. I have a thriving business. I have a very great reputation. Um, and I mean, yeah, the whole concept of sponsorships, the whole concept of tiny houses and tiny house living and hospitality. It's literally in less than five years transformed my entire view of my future. Yeah. And that's, I mean, what an amazing story, just being able to so quickly build up a thriving business. I'm a little nervous. I have to admit um, this year, this will, year will be interesting. You know, one of my, one of, I'll be vulnerable for a moment. My vice is projects because as long as I am buried in projects and moving forward and busy and crazy and hustling and traveling, like I don't have to stop and think quietly about what's next or, you know, like be very introspective about where I am because I'm always constantly, again, busy and crazy and running around. Now that the wine wagon is done, this past week has been like, oh, crap. <laughs> not because I'm not optimistic about my future, but I'm like, I've now officially pushed this, this business or pushed this concept as far as I think I'm as comfortably going. And now there's a lot of trust involved, right? You kind of, it's kind of got to coast and, and find its momentum. And yeah, so this week has been tough because I don't, I don't sit quietly very well. Oh boy. Well, maybe, I mean, you are on rented land, right? Maybe the next step is, is, is the permanent home. Yeah, that could be the next step. Um, that's definitely in the, in the possibilities, you know, I could, I could sit on my cash for a couple of years and then, you know, get enough in the coffer and actually buy, you know, buy a piece of land and move. Mm -hmm. Um, I could sit on my cash for a couple of years. I could buy some land, build up another one there if I have the money and the energy, I guess. But again, I think the the best part of sitting quietly is 
for better or for worse, I put myself in the opportunity in, you know, give myself the opportunity to say yes to what is next. Um, and by the way, what's next is I'm leaving for Italy in three days. Yay! Nice. Well, you just preempted my <laughs> my last question for you. So, MJ, oh. what, what's next for you? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, you're I'm great. I'm just so excited. I'm so excited. Like I'm sitting here in my tiny house and I'm just surrounded by, by luggage and like I'm trying to get ready to go. And so first of all, what's immediately next is my daughter and I are going on our first ever trip abroad. So we're leaving for Italy in a few days and I'm very, very, very excited been training the co-hosts so that the village can run itself in my absence. We're going to be gone for nine days and I'm super excited. It's again, the tiny house and my business and my, my job, everything like now gives me this ability to do stuff I never thought I would be able to. So that's super exciting. Directly, I'm then I come back from Italy. I think I'm home for a month. And then um, I'm actually going to be flying out to the Australia Tiny House Festival. Ooh. But yeah, thank you, Darren and Lisa, for inviting me. So I'm coming out there. I'm teaching actually a master class at the Tiny House Festival in Australia, um, as well as we have, um, I think we have a camp out and I'm doing some keynote speaking. And yeah, so I think I'm, then I'm in Australia, I think for 14 or 15 or 20 days or something. I don't know. I haven't. But that's going to be, again, a, a big opportunity for me to, to figure out how well the village kind of operates without me around, right? That's kind of take two. Yeah. And then also, I have actually already started another business. And so getting that new business also officially launched and really up and running and really going, I think is probably what I'll, what I'll be doing immediately when I get back from Australia. What is the new business? They're still tiny. They're still designed by me. They're still on wheels. And they're still rentable. Uh, my new business is called Oregon Teardrop Rentals. So I have uh, two, I've, I've designed and I have two teardrops in my, shall we call it fleet. And they're actually, so the whole concept is you can pull them with like any car. You know, you can pull them with a priest if you have to, and people come and rent the the teardrops and take them with them and and explore the Northwest and just camp camp out of them. Exactly, exactly. So, um, but so I wanted to bring the same minimalist approach, the same colorful, funky decor, the same photos, the same vibe, the same social media plan, and bring all of that to the teardrop rental business. Financially, it's an entirely different model because I'm now in a position to have actually borrowed the money uh, to actually purchase the teardrops. So financially, it's an entirely different business model. And it'll be very interesting to see 12 months from now what the difference is as far as, again, ROI, what the, you know, what the income versus revenue numbers are for, for the businesses side by side. One is a primarily cash and sponsor based. The other one is 100% financed. And paying interest, of course. So um, I feel like that one kind of up and running too. So what about the teardrops makes it possible to to borrow to to build them? Because they're RVs. Oh, so it's a self-built RV. Well, no, no, I didn't build it. I just oh. it. 
No, no, no. I designed them, but I did not build them. Um, they are, were actually built by, you know, by a local RV company. And it was funny because I was listening to a podcast um, from the CEO of a company called Outdoorsy. Outdoorsy is to RVs like Airbnb is to homes, right? So Outdoorsy is the the online booking platform for RVs. So sure. I was listening to a podcast from the CEO of Outdoorsy. And of course he was glowing and this is how much money you can make. And I was like, oh, that sounds really cool. So I went to, it was like 1130 at night. So I went online to my credit union and I filled out the like, you know, oh, here's my name and here's my phone number and here's how much money I make. And then you push the like, can I have a loan button at the bottom? And, you know, push the button, cross my fingers. 15 seconds later, I had an approval in my inbox. And I'm like, whoa, that was way too easy. Let's try this again. And so I went back to the same form and I da 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 and put the note down and put all the information and push the little button. And 15 seconds later, bing, I had another loan approval. And I'm like, oh, now I need a truck. So, because I'm getting these two drops. And so I went back into the thing and da da da, fell on the push the little loan approval. And this time, 15 seconds later, it goes, um, let's talk. <laughs> <laughs> so that, I mean, again, it was, it was really impetuous. Um, and, um, and then I found a manufacturer and, um, you know, designed them and, and the colors and the features and the sizes and everything. And then the cool thing about teardrops, I got to say, they're way cheaper than tiny houses, way easier to scale than tiny houses, right? Because the lead time is like six to eight weeks, easier to finance than tiny houses. I have none, you know, um, yeah, it's, it's a very different business model. But again, I think it's still on brand with what I do. Yeah. And also just, I would imagine that the legalities are so different you know, when you're oh, talking yeah. about tiny houses on wheels, even if you're renting them on Airbnb, there's always this, I'm sure, fear that, you know, one day the town's going to come knocking and saying, you know, you're in violation of some or another code. You know, with a teardrop, people are camping by definition, probably at a campsite or just stealth. And as the owner of the of the camper, it's probably just not even your problem. Correct. No, there's none of the shall we say, municipality concerns with the teardrop business that there are with the tiny house business. Now, the good news is, as you know, every single week we hear great, amazing, positive stories about how tiny houses are becoming more and more legalized. I was shocked to see that Los Angeles, California has now legalized tiny houses as accessory dwelling units. And that's amazing. And so Yeah. So anyone and everyone that rents or buys or lives in a tiny house, we all kind of have this glance over our shoulder thing. And I look forward to the day when that goes away, although I don't think it ever will. But um, yeah, with the teardrop business, it it is, uh, yeah, there's none of that. And of course, it's all, it's all, um, it's all assets. So at any time I can say, okay, and there's an NADA blue book. And, you know, so it's a, it's a definitely cleaner shall we say, a cleaner business model. Sure. Not as disruptive. It's not really exactly disruptive technology, but they're fun. My my first guest actually came and went during the Christmas season and they were, they had never pulled anything in their life. And they showed up with a Jeep and they had it for four days and they came back glowing. And they're like, 
oh my God, that was the funnest thing we've ever done. I thought, I mean, they've never cooked on a camp stove. They've never slept on an RV mattress. I mean, I thought, I'm like, oh, you're so nervous. And they were like, that was the best vacation we've ever had. So that was really rewarding and definitely validating. That's awesome. And I mean, of course, I got curious and the internet is right here in front of me. You know, I just looked on Outdoorsy and people are getting more per night for fifth wheel RVs than they are for a tiny house rental on Airbnb. Like crazy. Exactly. Exactly. All I need to do is rent each of my teardrops one time per month to pay for itself. Nice. So in the summertime, presumably I'll be 60, 70, 80% booked. Every rental over and above that first one is all profit. Well, congratulations on finding a killer new business model. Well, cross my fingers. We haven't exactly launched yet. So, okay. but definitely on the next, that's definitely what's next. And so, a uh, website, of course, OregonTwoDropRentals.com. And then also what next is my tiny house village website is now up and running. Very excited. MyTinyHouseVillage.com. You can look at all of my tiny houses. You can book them. You can also see my little niches wineries. And so I have a, a lot of features about the, my local, my neighbors and restaurants and locally managed antique shops. So um, that's definitely a what next as well. All right. Well. MJ Boyle, I feel like we could talk all day. Uh, maybe we can make this. I feel like it's an annual. This, it's now an annual tradition to have you on the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast. So um, it's officially an yeah, annual thing. Exactly. Thank you. That's really that's really awesome. And then um, as a teaser for the next show, I do have another Tiny House project that someone is trying to talk me into. So at our next um, interview, we will talk about whether or not I decided to take on that project what was I thinking? And uh, by then I'll, I'll probably be in the throes of it. I love it. It's like time, time travel in a year from now, you can <laughs> now skip, you know, 60 episodes forward and hear what happened, but you'll have to wait. <laughs> Thank you for your confidence. You're welcome, MJ. Great talking with you. Thank you so much to MJ Boyle for being a guest on the show. I've collected some of my favorite photos of MJ's tiny house builds and link to all of her properties on Airbnb at thetinyhouse.net slash 097. Again, that's thetinyhouse.net slash 097. Don't forget to rate and review the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast at ratethispodcast.com slash THLP. Again, that's ratethispodcast.com slash THLP. Well, that's all for this week. I'm your host, Ethan Waldman. And I'll be back next week with another episode of the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast.